0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowl. Hello and welcome to another episode of the North American Waterfowler podcast. My name is Elliot, your host here. And again, I appreciate you listening and tuning in. Thank you so much. Today, we are going to have on our second guest as we take a look at the migration throughout North America and try to get an overview picture of kind of what the migration was like on the last episode, I talked about my perception and here in the central flyway, the migration was way behind schedule. I would say three to four weeks, and it was very, very atypical as to when specifically the mallards showed up and how long the green wing teal just hung out. And then I talked to Chris Jobman, who was also in the central flyway, but farther north and way out to the west. And his perception was quite a bit different. He thought it was pretty much migration as normal, which I had told you when I was hunting on the South Dakota Nebraska border. And we had a massive cold front in the end of October. The mallards didn't show there, but showed up in Western Nebraska, which is a, which was very, very strange. Um, was it the drought? What was, what was it that caused that? I don't know, but that was the first observation kind of that I have seen from this. So today I'm going to be talking to. Hunter, and I'm going to have to ask him exactly how to pronounce his last name, Roanfelt. And he hunts in the Upper Mississippi Flyway. And he is actually um, the co-host now to the Duck Gun Podcast. And you've probably seen him on some of Jordan's videos. And if you follow along with the Duck Gun Podcast, you've heard him over there. So I needed someone from the Mississippi flyway. So I thought he would be a really good guess. He hunts a lot. I don't know. I think 50, 60 times a year, he gets out quite a bit. So he should definitely have the knowledge I'm looking for to the migration in that flyway. What did he see? How did the weather affect his hunting season? So I'll give. there'll be a little bit of an overview where he'll just tell us about his season, but I really want to focus on his thoughts on the migration. And I've got a couple more guests lined up. The next one after Hunter, I've got Freddie King coming on from Arkansas. So we'll have back to back where it'll be up in the Mississippi Flyway, up in Iowa, Illinois area, clear to Minnesota, and then down to Arkansas. And it'll be really interesting to see the difference of opinion from Hunter to Freddie. The one after that, I've got Captain Ruben Perez on. He's a sea duck hunter on the Atlantic Flyway. And I've been talking to another Atlantic Flyway guest. I won't give his name because I haven't secured that one, who is up in the Massachusetts, New Hampshire area. So we'll get a little idea of the Atlantic Flyway. And I've been talking to actually the um, winner of the North American Waterfowler podcast leaderboard, Jacob Caffrey. He is in the Pacific, the Northern Pacific Flyway. And so we're going to talk to him. I've still got a couple other. I would really like to get at least two from each flyway, kind of one that's a little farther north and one that's a little farther south. And obviously these are subjective opinions. But I'm just finding it really interesting to talk to these guys and get their perception of the flyway. Because what made me decide to do this was that in my 30 years of waterfowl hunting, it was one of the stranger migrations that I have seen. And again, I do not believe it's anything other than drought and weather, the La Nina. But I just want to get uh, hear from some other people and see what their thoughts on it are. So I am excited to do that, excited to talk to these guests. And we've got some awesome other episodes lined up that are going to be coming out. If you need to get old me for anything or if you'd like to submit a comment of the week, you can do that at FreelanceDuckHunting at gmail.com. Instagram, Freelance Duck Hunting, or the North American Waterfowler Facebook group, you can contact me over there. So before I have Hunter jump on here, I want to remind you to check out the sponsors. Final Approach, FABrand.com. Anything over there, you can get 10% off with the FDH10 code. So before you start checking off your list of purchases before next season, which I'm going to be bringing mine to you. I got to put mine together. My want list. That's going to happen. It's going to happen. And I'm going to bring that to you guys. So go over to FABrand.com and check out what they've got. Save yourself 10% off. Motion Ducks decoy spreader. The best jerk rig system on the market. In my opinion, I've used a lot of jerk rigs and I'll never go back to a traditional jerk rig. MotionDucks.com. Go check that out. And Onyx Hunt. Revolutionize your waterfowl hunting with their system over there. So let's go ahead and jump right into this. I am excited to have Hunter on here. I have communicated back and forth with Hunter multiple times. He's over there on the Facebook group. He always has an opinion, um, an interesting opinion on different topics that I bring up. I just love talking to him in that format, but I've never talked to him personally. So this will be a really interesting conversation. So without further ado, Let's go ahead and bring Hunter on right now. So, how are you doing today, Hunter?
2: Oh, it's another beautiful day in paradise.
1: Pronounce your last name for me. Roenfeld? is that correct?
2: Yeah. Rowanfeld. You're pretty close. Rowan. A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people add an S for some reason, but it's out.
1: <laughs> they, it they say it as and how? Rowanfeld?
2: Yeah, like uh, Rowan, Rowan, what was it Ro- Rosenfeld? Rosenfeld? <laughs> I've heard all sorts of stuff.
1: I, I was pretty close. I said Roenfeld.
2: Roman.
1: Yep. nice nice well i appreciate you coming on here today um i don't know if you had a chance to listen to the last podcast i did or not but what i'm looking to do really i, I want to do a review of your season and but i really want to get an idea of what you felt like as far as the migration wise okay and we will get, we'll get into that in a little bit later like was it a typical migration as far as when the birds were showing up How long they stayed? Was it abnormal in some way? For me, personally, it was probably a month delayed. We didn't start, I didn't shoot any mallards until December. And if you go into the North American waterfowler app, and there wasn't hundreds and hundreds of of hunts logged, but there was about 100 of them. It was green-winged teal were by far the pervasive species in Kansas all November, but in Nebraska- you were seeing a lot more mallards killed and that's just, so the mallards just hung up North. And then when they did come down, they even kind of swung West. So I can't know if they swung West or whether I I don't know, but the mallards came down farther South to the West of us in Western Nebraska, much faster than they did in Kansas, which I find really, really interesting. So we're just kind of trying to look for a global picture of not global. I keep saying that Uh, (laughs) it's not global, Uh, but a picture of North America of kind of everyone's perceptions of how the migration went. But before we get into that, I want to give the listeners a little bit of background on you. And so I I don't even know this information. So I'm looking forward to hearing it too. Just give a little background of um, how you got into the sport, what area, you know, be as specific as you'd like to, or as non-specific. what area you frequent and what your hunting life is like.
2: All right. So to start it off, I got into the sport. It was my, uh, my dad took me, I don't know. I probably was, I was young, 10, 12, somewhere in that neighborhood. And we started off a jump shooting pond. There's a pond across the road from our house and we'd go jump shoot birds off it three or four times a year. Did that for a couple of years. And then I was probably like junior high age. Cause I was riding the bus back from, from school. It was probably junior high. And I like came down, we have kind of a long driveway, came down this long driveway and there's just a boat sitting there with a blind on it. And I, you know, I've never been around anything like that to that point. We've always been deer hunters and upland hunting. And he was like, yeah, bought a boat. We're going duck hunting tomorrow morning. And make a kind of a long story short, we went to a marsh that he used to duck hunt with his dad, with my grandpa. And we went back in there and shot some wood ducks and just like just like a lot of people's stories gets hooked, you know, that, that early morning wood duck flight when you're right. 14, 13 years old is just the most incredible thing in the world. So and then going from there, I, you know, hunted weekends and stuff with my dad for a long time, went to college. When I went to college, I actually was able to hunt pretty much every morning for both years I was in college. And then from there I went and had my own business for a couple of years. So I'd say the last five, six years, I've hunted extremely seriously, a 40 plus days a year. And we have a sixty-day season here, so that's a significant amount of it.
1: That is, gosh, sixty-day seasons. Now, do you guys have split-up zones where you're able to bounce around, or you just have sixty days?
2: Yeah, we have. Uh, they actually changed it in Iowa a couple of years ago. They like we always had three zones, but they changed where the zones actually were. And so now I get the advantage where I can hunt both the north, the central, and the south zone, so I can kind of extend my season that way. But it's not as much as I would like. I wish we had longer seasons. Of course. So how many days can you get? If you can, if you bounce around all three zones, how many
1: days mm. have you ever added it up?
2: No, I never have. I bet it's close to like that, that 80 mark if you don't include teal and goose season because mm-hmm. our north zone opens a week earlier than me and then there's a week off. So you get three weeks extra. However, that would end up 15 days, I guess.
1: So if you can't teal, which I fully, I totally can't teal in ours, um, you're in the 90s then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. If we go to all those, it's probably close to 90.
1: Because here, It's just the best. We start well, I'll slip into Nebraska, start September one, and then until the end of January, there's I think one weekend there in between teal season sometimes, but it depends on how it hits. I can slip back into Nebraska for like that end of September, that that last weekend. And then sometimes there's like five days in January. You can't, but basically September one, February one it's like a hundred and I added it up one time. It's deep into the hundreds as far as hmm. number of days that I can hunt with a two hour drive.
2: Yeah. I, I wish. Cause I think we start September one for teal, and then there's like a two week gap before our North zone opens up. And then that, you know, I can hunt pretty much from the first week in October all the way to like the second week of December. And that's yeah. where, that's where like our duck season ends and then our goose season runs until mid January.
1: Yeah. With, you know, the population's kind of on the decline. I think if we have a wet season, I think that'll take care of itself. But my biggest fear is they start cutting days. I mean, that to me, that's just, if I only had 60, 70 days, oh man, I can't imagine what that'd do to my mentality.
2: (laughs) I mean, I just take off more work. I get the advantage where I work to work second shift for the last couple of years. So I get a hunt every morning, any morning, I guess I want to hunt. So yeah, i just take off more work and hunt more. <laughs> so what do you do? So I work in aerospace. I work for a company called Eaton and we build air to air refueling systems. And I'm a, I'm a technician on those.
1: Oh, wow. Air to air refueling system. So is that, is that all military or do they do? Is there some um, public or private people that air to
2: air refuel? Yeah. So all of our stuff currently is uh, the military stuff. It's not just ours. It's some international military stuff too. But uh, the other parts of our company, they also make, like, uh, oxygen creators. So, like, uh, you're in a plane, the little mass fall down. Mm-hmm. That oxygen system is, like, being – that oxygen is being made by a system that we make in the same facility. And then I'm so, actually switching jobs to a new job called Coolers, which goes with, like, FLIR thermal imagers. And this is, like, a cryogenic cooling that goes along with those. And so we build all those, too.
1: So same company, just new division? Yep, yep. Essentially? So what, what degree do you have to get to work something work that kind of job?
2: So I have, a, I have an associate's in applied science. I actually technically went to school for gunsmithing technology. But yeah, it's associate's in applied science to be a technician. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, it's actually pretty awesome. You can come in to the job at a GED level, you know, just graduate high school and be in the deep in the $20 range per hour. Wow.
1: That's crazy because that seems like pretty sophisticated stuff you guys
2: are working on. Yeah, it's a pretty robust process, though, you know, the engineering and everything that goes into it. And one of the things that really surprised me when I got into it was I always figured it'd be ever-changing, you know, high-speed, low-drag, all this and that and the other thing. And there's still stuff that we make today that was originally designed in 57. And, like, wow. it's still in new production to this day.
1: Huh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I would have, I would think I would, I'm surprised a job like that. You get so much time off. How does that work? Like you just have a checklist of things you have to do.
2: So it, we're a union shop, so I'm on the uh, union side of things. So it's all part of the contract stuff of, you know, accruing hours. And I of course save every hour I get until duck season. And yeah. then with <laughs> yeah. working second shift, I can hunt. I work till like 11 o'clock at night and actually I'll go out in the boat, leave straight from work, pick up the boat, go out, go sleep in the boat and then hunt. And then essentially come back to the house, take a shower, take a nap, go, go back to work.
1: How often do you do that?
2: Oh, uh, I think I slept in the boat like 20 nights this year. Something like that. 15, <laughs> so 20 what, nights.
1: What, we're going way off topic, but this is interesting. So I know that you're an interesting individual and you and I have never actually talked. because I want to get into your gunsmithing. We're going to get around to what we get around <laughs> to, but I, I just want to ask what I want to ask. So um, what is your process or routine for sleeping in your boat? So I know you when, have to have some system like, I, you know, I do. I have a checklist and here's what I bring. Tell me. About yeah. That.
2: So when it's just me, I have a cot. And so I have a 1860 Havoc MSTC for anybody that wants to look mm-hmm. that up. It's a mud boat. And uh, underneath the front deck, it's perfect space where I can put a cot, a sleeping bag, a mat and a pillow. And so when I'm by myself, I just put the cot out. I have a uh, what do they call that? It's like a military style sleeping bag. It's like mm-hmm. three bags in one with a rain cover. So I can even lay while it's raining out there inside my sleeping bag and be dry. And you so, take your dog tip,
1: with you on that? On those? Yeah,
2: she'll uh she'll lay underneath the cot on the bottom of the boat. Oh man. I bet you just love doing that. I would oh, yeah. I
1: would love doing that. I would oh, love yeah.
2: doing that. It's awesome. Especially when you got like, I mean, you always hate to see clear nights, but when you got a clear night and you're just you're tired after working and everything, you look up, you get to watch the stars and everything go to bed.
1: You know, I don't think a big enough Section of the waterfowling community understands
2: because that's all that is
1: is just full immersion stuff, which I've talked about forever. You're just immersing yourself in it, you're living in it. Just like there's something about spending an extended amount of time in that environment, it changes how you feel about it. It's not like you're visiting anymore, it's like yeah, you're I, immersed in it.
2: Yeah, I could agree with that. I mean, like. One of my most fond hunts this year is actually the opening morning teal hunt, which I know we were like Marco and back and forth with Jordan about mm-hmm. that. You know, we recorded a podcast sitting right on the right on the bank in the boat. You know, it was yeah. a beautiful day and we slept in the boat and got to get out and shoot birds. And like that was honestly one of my favorite hunts from the year.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I'm, I love that kind of stuff. I'm all in. I, there's certain ones that are more fun. There. I know my opening day for Kansas, i sat in a in a chair in a marsh all night with Georgie and her stand. It wasn't, I, w- it w- I struggled to be comfortable, so it wasn't the best thing, but it, there was little teal. You could, I couldn't see them, but they were landing within 20 yards of me all night long. in this hole. you just hear the, little, you'd hear the wings and you hear the little, you know, the little feet hit the water and mm-hmm. just stuff like that is so much fun. That's
2: yeah. So much fun yeah. So I spend I spend quite a few nights out in the marsh. And even like like uh, leading up to season, I'll go out. And even on days I don't sleep like the full night in the marsh, I'll go out early enough to where maybe I might fall asleep in the chair. Yeah, yeah. I'm up I'm out early enough that the disturbance that I cause by going out is definitely gone before season starts.
1: Yeah. I, I'm I don't go out as early as you do, but I love being the first person in the parking lot. I cannot stand if I'm rushing to be set up in time. You know, there's just like, I am on such edge emotionally. If I'm worried to be beating, being beat into a spot or whatever, it's like, I can't sleep. I'm like, I'm just, once I get to the parking lot, well, actually once I get the spot, I'm calling that. But if you get the parking lot and you're the first, there's just a level of, okay, a big sigh of relief. And, and then walking in and you're at your spot for the first person there. And, and, it's just that part of it is, is I can't stand going in late unless if I'm going late, like showing up like an hour after or two hours after something I'm cool with that. But if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be there and I want from sun up to 10 is really a priority. Then it's like, get there early. You
2: gotta get there early. Yeah. See, like it's better. My like biggest like fear is pulling up. We have a lot of our boat landings are like over the top of a railroad track because we're going Mm -hmm. like down into the river and the railroad tracks line both sides of the river here. Mm -hmm. And so you like go up over the railroad track and like you you lights crest the hill and you see like the parking lot. And as soon Mm -hmm. as I see like the reflection of a license plate immediately, I'm like, nope, we're done with today. (laughs) We're going somewhere else. Like they might even be a mile from me, but I I just there's something about that that just (laughs) bothers me. That's why I go out and sleep in the marsh. I don't have to worry Mm -hmm. about it. I got a boat yeah. that's fast. We have like a on our WMAs, we're allowed to go out at twelve oh one in the morning is like as early as you're allowed to be on the marsh. Yeah. And so like uh I'm sure you've seen some of the stuff. We like we tend to drag race when the hunting gets really good, you actually have to drag race to your spots mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the boats. And so I have a boat where I don't much have to worry about people beating me to places. So
1: I need yeah. your boat. Mine is slow.
2: It's a tank, it's got a lot of space, but it's
1: it can It does great on ice. It does great breaking ice. I don't worry about it, but it is slow. Mm -hmm. It it took us, I was going, I hunted the Missouri river one time. Well, more than one time this year, but on this one trip, we were going up upstream and it took us like an hour to go seven miles. (laughs) Brutal. (laughs) Yeah. We were fully loaded down. We were going up. I think it runs at about seven miles an hour on the river and yeah it was not fun you just feel you you look at beside you and you look at the bank because the river as you're going upstream it looks like you're going fast because the river's going by you but then you look at the bank you're like i could literally crawl
2: faster than this (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah we have like the you know i live on the mississippi for anybody that doesn't know but where we hunt here the river doesn't have like a fast current it's usually pretty big and flat Mm -hmm. and uh but still i'll run you know three guys gear whole hunt load, but the dog, I'll still run upper twenties, 27, 28 mile an hour oh, up man. or down river. So that's awesome. I get where I want to go. Yeah. So the
1: river up there, it's all, it's spread out and covers, uh, from like side to side. Cause I've, I've never been up there. Um, it's all spread out with a lot of channels.
2: Um, it kind of depends on where you're at. So there's certain parts of the channel of the river where it's really narrow. Um, usually that's where like old rock falls and like rapids used to be. Mm-hmm. is where the river kind of narrows up. And then there's other parts where once they put in the lock system, it like flooded up what used to be marshes. And so there's a couple areas that are like, you know, more than a mile across. It looks like mm-hmm. a lake when you pull up to it and then you go up river half mile and you might be in, you know, there might be 50 islands that you're looking at and just different stuff like that. It's, it's got a lot of variety. I'm really lucky on where I'm at in the river because I have that, that pretty big variety of where I can go.
1: Yeah. Are there a lot of little, I, like in my mind, listening to, you know, watching Jordan hunt and listening to you guys talk about it, um, you can get up there and get away pretty easily. And there's a lot of little holes to be found.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. And like a lot of the holes kind of got formed a long time ago with like different channels. And like it, our river doesn't change as much as I think I've heard you talk about your river as far as like the sandbars and stuff like mm-hmm. that but a big flood will come through and it'll totally change the way an Island is shaped. It'll totally change what the interior of an Island looks like. And like w- during teal, teal hunt this year, we were hunting an interior marsh inside of an Island, which was kind of yeah. cool. And there's, there's yeah. quite a few of those. And there's the old river channels that, you know, there it was a channel. And then for whatever reason, a tree fell across the front of it. So now it's silted in on both ends. And now it's just a, a slough. and yeah. we can find stuff like that. And, you can find stuff as small as twenty yards to some pretty big little cuts back in there.
1: Do the mallards get into those sloughs?
2: I have not had good success shooting mallards in the sloughs like that, but I do know it is possible. I mean, I've had some occasional hunts that are good, but typically not really. Typically i you know, we use them for wood ducks, and by the time the mallards are around, we've kind of switched to hunting the more like wide open flats areas. Mm-hmm. A
1: really interesting sounding area. It here I'm right on the Missouri River and when you cross the Missouri River a bridge you can see what it used to be. You can see the flats. And now mm-hmm. they've they're still doing it. They still they they channel it completely channelized it. And so they go in there and they they make these big tea dikes with rocks and they line the banks and they create big dams, big dikes on both sides so you can't flood. And they just keep everything right in the center of the channel. But you can see what it used to be. You can look across into Missouri and see where the river used to go. And it's, I don't know, miles. I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think in my mind how far <laughs> it would be. Four, five, six miles from side to side. I'm like, that had to be just a paradise. Oh, before yeah. It. And it just makes me so, I know that like for commerce and and, I mean, back before when we didn't have trains and even after trains the moving goods was a big problem and i know that they why they did it but it's just such a shame to look at what it must have been like and what it, it's just now it's even go on it's just it's not visually attractive it's not even a fun environment to be on now, the kansas river is kind of more of a fun place to be but um the missouri river in here just I mean, I, I shot a limit off at one time this year, but it just sucks compared to what I know it was 200 years ago.
2: Yeah. And see, like, I struggle with the same thing here because one of the things I'm sure we'll get into at some point, but I'm big into diver hunting and mm-hmm. the pools that we hunt divers used to be giant marshes. I mean, like, you know, miles of marsh ground and then they put in the dikes and now it's a flooded pool. You know, it looks like right. a lake or anything like mm-hmm. that. And, um, so I love it cause I get a hunt ma- or I get to hunt divers on them. But man, I bet it was it was miles of marsh ground before they flooded it up with the dike system or the the lock and dam system that they have on the river now. And then the other thing that's really devastating I wish I could have seen was I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent of the marsh ground in Iowa has been like lost due to farming practices. Mm. And like I I couldn't imagine how incredible the hunting used to be here.
1: Yeah. Whereas Kansas, the hunting has gotten better over time because, I mean, there wasn't much here mm-hmm. 200 years ago. Cheyenne Bottoms, Quivira, there there are some wetlands, but they would have been a dry a lot of years. And now once they, with all these reservoirs they put in, then you have all this flooding on the top end of it. And so I think probably other than those few natural wetlands, which I'm sure the natural wetlands, I know like Cheyenne Bottoms just massive. I'm sure there was thousands and thousands and thousands of, of ducks there. But as far as the entire state goes, um, it's probably better now than it was then. It's probably more of a flyer flyover state other than those few places. So, well, someone's probably listening to this. Just tell me how stupid I am about that comment. but <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's, but the there's... point
1: being is the reservoirs have because if you're hunting Kansas, typically you're hunting reservoirs. You're hunting the upper end of the reservoirs, and there's a lot of them. So you're bouncing mm-hmm. from man-made area to man-made area, and then there's three or four natural marshes that are even open to hunters. So hmm. that's kind of the hunting in in Kansas right now is man-made reservoir stuff.
2: Yeah. And see, like we hunt, there's a couple reservoirs here. Not, not too many, honestly, but we hunt like, if you're not in the river proper, a lot of our, what they call WMAs, the wildlife management areas, which Mm -hmm. are owned by the DNR, uh, they're like wetlands that are just a dike off of the river. So it's where at some point there was a dike built and then it's like a wetland that's been kept, I guess, for lack of a better Mm -hmm. way to put it. And the one thing that we have an advantage here, especially where I'm at, is there's a lot of refuge so pretty much every WMA has its own refuge, which is like, if you took the WMA, cut it in half, half of its refuge, no, nobody can go in there. It's just mm-hmm. safe place for ducks. And then even I'll say I hunt in the upper Mississippi wildlife refuge and within the upper Mississippi wildlife refuge, there's spots that are no hunting. And so mm-hmm. like, even within it, there are islands and areas that you're not allowed to hunt. And so we get a lot of rest places for the birds. So we end up shooting the birds that come off the refuges pretty often.
1: Right. I imagine they probably get pretty nocturnal around those under a a lot of pressure.
2: Yeah. And this is where like my style of hunting has changed over the years because I used to struggle with that a lot. But then I started hunting uh, divers and well, divers don't really go nocturnal. And so as Mm -hmm. soon as I start to notice the birds getting stale and and the divers show up, I just put the mallard decoys away and go hunt the cans. Yeah. So,
1: So when the, when the divers show up, you're not even targeting puddle ducks after that.
2: Yeah. For the most part, I'm going to be like chasing the divers for, I mean, usually it's the first, second week in November is when we get like our usual push of divers. Thanksgiving weekend's always a historically a good weekend here for birds. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be hunting them. If I get, and I find mallards, if I find a good spot, I will go hunt them, but I'm typically just going back out and hunting the hunting long hunting cans and hunting bluebills and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Is that pretty typical to the area or are you kind of the odd man out on that?
2: Oh, I'm definitely the odd man out on that. I think that, I mean, as an example, there's a boat landing, which you know, this will make no sense to anybody unless you live here. But there's a boat landing where you can turn one way out of the boat landing and hunt divers and you can turn another way and go hunt upriver and hunt dabblers. And there was 37 trucks there one morning. And four trucks were hunting divers. Hmm. So, how many of those tags are going to be out of state? It depends. Uh, this year is, I noticed more than normal. I consider out of state to not be Iowa or Illinois because right. it's pretty common to, you know, cross the river. Almost everybody that lives on the river has an Iowa and an Illinois license. But this year I saw a couple more, you know, Michigan, saw a couple Minnesota, Missouri. Missouri this year seemed like a big one that I don't know if it's just, Cognitive bias, but I was, felt like I saw a bunch of Missouri tags this year, right? But like comparatively, still pretty low. Like you know, if there's ten trucks in a parking lot, there might be one or two that are out of state, but mostly in in state, Iowa, Illinois. Well,
1: after Kansas passes the new non-resident restrictions, you may be seeing a lot more. Be ready.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're um, coming. I don't know. They're we'll, coming. We'll, we'll see. I, the The thing is, I will warn anybody that comes here is that it is heavy pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about, I was listening to one of your podcasts. You were talking about like spacing and like how much mm-hmm. space you would like to have. And it's like, man, I would, I would dream of like a three day. Like if we're hunting a marsh and you get 200 yards, you've got to consider that a pretty good day. Really? Yeah. And like, if you're in a WMA on the river, you can kind of get more space, but still, mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain areas on the river that if you get hundred yards, you're having, like you're happy.
1: Oh man, I just can't stand it. I just can't, I can't stand listening to people cackle and talk the whole day. It, yeah. it just drives me nuts. That's why I, I would love to, I have to be careful. I As I get older, I'm trying to be less like you should do it my way, you know, <laughs> but I, I try to promote talking quietly when you're out there it's like a place of reverence everyone in the group let's not be yelling i mean you know if you have a massive group come in and everyone kills a bunch a little bit of you know celebration is fine but just in your general conversation you can talk in a voice that travels 300 yards or you can talk in a voice that travels 50 yards let's let's keep the 50 yard voice Mm -hmm. Um, i don't know because i do not want to hear people cackle and talk all day that just like and you and I had talked about the satisfaction score chart, which I'm hoping I can get that implemented by next year on the on the app. But I'm that definitely will start bringing my score down for mm. listening to the seeing seeing or listening to other people.
2: Yeah, see, I think what bothers me more than hearing people talk is hearing people call. I don't think. Like that's an immediate way to get me just infuriated is when someone starts calling swings or calling birds that are set on your set and like yeah. that's an immediate way for me to like not be very happy about a hunt. <laughs>
1: um tell me uh talk to me about your gunsmithing.
2: Time. <laughs> what do you want to know about it? So
1: I, I well I'd heard you bring that up at some point and I just thought that was really interesting. Like I can't imagine there's a great demand for gunsmiths anymore. I say that because it seems I've looked a couple up and finding them is really, really difficult these days. So I assume there must not be much of a demand for it.
2: Well, it's, it's kind of twofold. So I guess the, the whole story is I went to school for gunsmithing technology. I'm like considered to be classically trained in it where, If you bring me a gun and I can't find a part for it, I could probably make the part. I have a mill Mm. and a lathe and then a whole heat treat system. So I can make springs. I could pretty much do whatever if I wanted to. If you got enough money, I could pretty much make it. But that's the problem. So the problem that comes in with firearms is is they have a lot of sentimental value, but they don't have a lot of actual value. Mm. And so like, it's pretty easy. You know, If you take your car to the shop, they spend five hours working on it and give you a $600 bill. You're upset about it, but you're going to pay it. Well, if I yeah. spend five hours working on your gun and give you a six hundred dollar bill, you're going to leave me with a two hundred dollar gun, like. Right. And so that's the problem with gunsmithing. But yeah, I actually yeah. went to school, and then I had a gun shop for three years, and I ended up getting bought out uh, bought out from my uh, business partner. And so that's when I went into aerospace.
1: Hmm. So, personal question: If my gun is <clears throat> my gun this year, probably more times than I would like clicked. Okay. Any thoughts as to what might be caused? Is that can that be an ammunition? I've only used one type of ammunition with with the gun. Can that be a primer on the shell, or is that typically? Would you think that to be a gun problem? And what would what
2: would cause mm-hmm. something like that? So the it is light primer. Like you, you're seeing a primer strike, right? On the not shells? all the
1: time. Uh, not 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 all the time. Um, some.
2: Mm, that's probably a gun. No, normally
1: issue, what then. happens is normally what happens is it clicks. I kick that thing out into the water and oh. then I'm trying to, so it's not like I've got a lot of like surveying it.
2: Mm, yeah. It's, I mean, if you're not seeing a primer strike, it's probably a gun problem. It probably has to do with a firing pin or if, re, even mm. if the return spring is a little bit off or anything like that. But typically that would be, if you're not seeing a strike now, if you're seeing like a good primer strike, then it might be wet ammo. I actually went through a bunch of wet ammo this year. I lost mm-hmm. way too many birds due to wet ammo, but just kind of I'd have to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the cop-out I, answer.
1: <laughs> well, hey, no, that I think that's a that's an informed answer. I, I want it to be the shells, I can tell you that. I want I'm hoping I'm hoping it's the shells. So um let's jump over into your hunting season before we talk about the specific migration and just give me an overview. Um, I, I know you had a pretty productive year because you're over there on the app, and I think you ended up in like fourth or fifth place on the leaderboard, something like that.
2: Yeah, I just looked today, and I'm sixth. So sixth. Yep. So not bad. No,
1: no, not bad at all. I mean, it's like I had my best year ever at 132 birds, and that puts me at like I think four, 13th or 14th, and that's to me like, that's a lot of birds. Like if you get into the top 10. It's like anyone that hits a, I'm, I'm generally speaking, in the duck hunting world, if you hit 100, you're like, you know, wow, that's incredible. But to be top 10 on the leaderboards over there, you've got to be pushing the 200, 200 plus range, or you're not going to, um, you're definitely not going to snip the top. Let's say I could, if I had had 150, I think I would have been maybe 10 or something. Mm. It's like upper echelon of bird of killers
2: <laughs> on that yeah. deal. Well, I appreciate it. I think it's a little bit of a compliment. I'll take it as one, well anyways. I think it's. Do cool you have
1: your Do you have your numbers? Yeah, up? I got them right here. I'd love to hear those.
2: All, All right. right. So uh, the first thing is, is that I think everybody that beat me is not in the Mississippi Flyway. There might be one person from south of me that is above me in the leaderboards, but I'm pretty sure most people from the Central Flyway.
1: And I'm I plan to have flyways as a leaderboard option. Um, I don't know when, but I've got all these ideas, but I, I would love to. And the scoring system one didn't change as well. So yeah. scoring system and fly anyway.
2: Okay. So like the big overview is I went on 53 hunts this year and I ended up with 201 total birds. That's like the nice. big, the two big takeaways. Is that uh, your first
1: time you ever hit 200 or have you hit 200 before?
2: I had 210 last year. Wow. So last year was my best year ever. This was my second best year. I think previously I was like in the 170s was a record for me. Mm-hmm. So pretty good shooting percentage 51%. That was a little bit better than last year. Mm-hmm. 3.79 birds per hunt, so almost 3.8 birds per hunt, which that's that's still an incredible range in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. What one thing I need to work on is I shot 24 doubles but only one triple all year, which like mm-hmm. I feel sad about that. I don't know why Triples but i feel hard sad to come about
1: by, though. it though. Triples are hard to come by.
2: Yeah, and I shoot a lot of side by sides, so like you know, and over under, so definitely really hard to come by. Well, when yeah, that's those, really but. gonna
1: make it difficult. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like, I had one uh, during a teal hunt. I actually shot a quad, so oh. I I actually scotch doubled or scotch tripled uh-huh. and then shot a, a missed, and then with the third shell shot a fourth bird. But so yeah, those are the big numbers: is two hundred one birds overall, and then out of fifty three hunts, that's the how much you lose. Um, I did not keep track of lost birds this year. I had, if I had to guess, it would be somewhere in the five for like probably personal birds down that That's I lost. Bad. And then I probably, if I had to guess, like a lot of those are divers, which mm-hmm. is rough Makes and then, harder. Oh, way, way harder. Mm-hmm. But if I had to guess, I probably watched somewhere around 20 birds get lost this year with everybody mm-hmm. I hunt with and everything. And again, a lot of those are divers. Cause once they get out, I mean like, I don't even take the dog on a lot of diver hunts. It's just not worth the effort, honestly. But so what
1: do you mean? Why, why wouldn't you take your dog on the dive runs?
2: So, um, I'll take her when we hunt from a shoreline. So when we're hunting from a shoreline or we're hunting from like the boat from a shoreline, then I'll take her with us because then it's easy to like run her from the shoreline. But if we're hunting open water, like with layout boats and stuff like that, mm-hmm. then it, it's just easier just to drive the, you, you know, you, you lay a layout boat out, you throw a spread and then you have a run boat. And it's just, it's easier just to pick the birds up with the run boat and everything else. dog doesn't really get you anything like that. Yeah, that that makes sense. What was your group total? Uh, Let me click on her here. 449. I was ticked at Mm. Jordan. He didn't get me the last, get me the 450 at that goose hunts, but yeah, 449. (laughs) Did Jordan whiff? Yeah, he whiffed on a bird. Actually, I'm pretty sure I whiffed on it, but I can still, (laughs) I can still blame him.
1: Yeah, he's fun to blame.
2: Yep, yep, <laughs> Can yep. you give me a breakdown of your
1: species numbers?
2: All right, so the number one species this year, which is weird, is a green-winged teal. Shot 35 mm. of those. Uh, number two was blue-winged teal at 27. And then we had bufflehead at 24, uh, canvas back drakes at 20, wood-duck drakes 16, mallard drake at 10.
1: Hmm.
2: That's a big distribution.
1: My, mine was between three birds blue wings, green wings. Well, green wings first, blue wings second, and mallards third. It was like all of them were in the 30, like 35, 33, 32. Hmm. That was the vast majority of my birds.
2: Yeah. I mean, I still have like a big spread too, like Goldeneye, Gatwall, Pentails, Redheads, mm-hmm. all sorts of, you know, 14 scalp. So, yeah. Um, Talk to
1: us about the migration and what your perceptions were as far as when birds came through, numbers of birds, um, average, above average, early, late.
2: All right. So to start with, the first thing that was weird about migration was September 1st, we shot a three-man limited teal, of which only two were blue wings. All the rest were green wing teal. We shot 18 teal and 16 were green wings and that's kind of how our teal season went as we shot mostly blue or green wing teals and not that many blue wings. Now we hunted a little bit different area than normal and that might have had something to do with it, but it was still very surprising how many green wings we were seeing, even on the wing, how many more green wings we were seeing than blue wings.
1: What would be norm for a normal year, what would the distribution kind of guess at it what it would be?
2: I think what last year Uh, not like this last season but the season previous i think that like the group i hunted with shot like 96 teal in four days and i think there was two green wings in it last year yeah
1: that would be typical for us as well um we don't hardly first weekend we don't hardly shoot any green wings. i mean almost none
2: yeah and so that was that was very strange and actually like we didn't Hmm. even notice it until we were like halfway through our first hunt we're like there's not a single blue wing here like we're just like oh yeah another green wing teal and then by the time we like got the pile and you got stopped and looked at it, you're like, oh, my gosh, there's actually no blue wings sitting here.
1: That is odd. Did Now, did that keep up through all of teal season?
2: For me, it did. I had one limit of all blue wing teal. The rest of them were mixed limits the rest of the year, which I think last year I think I shot like six all blue wing teal limits, and this year I only shot one.
1: Hmm. Now, looking back at the um, production reports, were, were green wings and blue wings up or down?
2: I think green I wings recall. were up, but I don't. I don't recall. I think in green
1: wings and up, and blue wings were down. Yeah, I, I doubt it was a big enough number to make really, you know, because they can give you those numbers, but when it actually comes to your bag and your hunt, those numbers aren't changing dramatically enough to be like all of a sudden we're killing all green wings. You know, mm-hmm. why do you do you have any idea why uh, there would have been a change with the green wings?
2: No, cause we didn't have, I mean, like it was hot this year during our teal season. It was like triple digits. I mean, I remember when we were planning it, they dropped the temperature down a little bit, but it was like 110 degrees three days before mm-hmm. teal season. So like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. And the one thing, like I said, is we did hunt a little bit different area than normal, a little bit different habitat than normal, but still it was like the guys that I knew that hunted the same areas that we typically hunt and typically produce teal, they still shot comparatively more green wings than blue wings like than a typical year so i honestly i don't know maybe and the other thing is i didn't have we have like uh, birds that nest here and i'll actually breed here and i didn't see i think i saw one brood of blue wing teal that had roosted that nested here in like all summer and i'm seeing you know hundreds of wood ducks and you know probably 10 to 50 different pairs of mallards, but I didn't see, I saw one group of teal here. So that would have been my other guess, but I don't think that's true.
1: Was it, uh, I know we, we were a lot hotter, especially deep into August, September. Um, It was way hotter here than I imagine. You guys probably experienced that as well. And I wonder if that has some kind of effect
2: on teal. Yeah. I don't know. I would have figured that with it being hotter like that, it would have like not had green wings. Yeah, like I would have like figured the, it would have stopped mm-hmm. the green wings from coming down, not the vice versa. And right. I mean, well, <laughs> the hunt that we had on the green wings, especially opening morning. I mean, it was magical. There was literally mm-hmm. thousands of green wings flying through the decoys. Like yeah, I shot great video. Yeah. It, in the, the video doesn't even do it. Do it. Yes. honestly, it never, never does. does. But like I shot my six, green wing teal with I think it was nine shells and I didn't even have a choke in my gun I forgot to put a choke in my gun that morning <laughs> oh so like that's how close and like in your face they were
1: <laughs> yeah I love killing killing teal close like that or any ducky it's like there's no nothing that's too close for me as far as enjoyment mm-hmm. I mean, you give give it to me at five yards I mean it's just <laughs> it's just so much more visually not necessarily I'll pull the trigger at five yards but I mean, it's so much more visually
2: appealing. Oh, Closer,
1: yeah. You can get the bird to your face. Oh, yeah.
2: See. And actually, one of the things that like surprised me this year, like I said, we were seeing a lot of green and blue wing or a lot of greens c- or compared to blue wings, but I actually mm-hmm. got really good identifying on the wing how they fly differently during the teal mm-hmm. season, which I like, I don't know, the teal looks like a teal, I guess, this is always well, the way I've always kind of looked at it, but right. like they fly totally separately different, the green and can blues. You expand on that a little bit? So I, the best way to explain it is that the green wings flew more like a typical dabbler than the blue wings do. The blue wings kind of come in like lower, they were coming in lower door sets and then they were like more sporadic. They wouldn't all set, you know, you'd have two or three that would set off of a sp- off a flock and then the rest of the flock mm-hmm. would circle around. Where like green wings would kind of set more like a typical dabbler, like what I'd expect. They would mm-hmm. circle around in front set and all kind of come in at once was like the best best way I can describe it is they send a they were less sporadic in the flight, I think is the best way to say it,
1: okay so move us on with your migration from from teal season so
2: green wings were um much
1: higher number than than normal mm-hmm. How did it go moving from that point forward
2: so during like our opener weekend, it was actually kind of similar to last year. We had a pretty cold snap right at opener which, uh, like, it was cold enough there was frost on the ground. I don't remember exact temperatures, but there was frost that morning. And because of that, we ended up with, again, just like last year, kind of a short, I'm going to call it wood duck season. We kind of hunt wood ducks for the first couple weeks of season. And it was shorter than I remember it being. You know, I got on, like, four or five really good wood duck hunts, and the rest of them were kind of, yeah, I'd shoot one or two here or there. Um, So it seemed like the wood ducks got kicked out early. We also got that pretty early cold snap. I always thought it was the first week in November, but it turns out it was the last week in October, I think when we got our first real cold and it was actually Mm -hmm. enough that it froze most of our inland marshes. So it froze up all the WMAs and it froze up all the marshes inside of the islands, all the marshes that didn't have current. And I had a huge push of birds there. So, um, we, I think I shot four or five limits in a row those days. One of them actually ended up shooting a banded mallard hen and it was banded in Saskatchewan, but it was a two or three year old band. I don't remember the exact details now, but it was a Northern bird and it came in and with that real big cold in early October. Mm -hmm. So what was
1: the biggest type of uh, species of bird you were seeing on that big push?
2: uh, I had uh, quite a few gadwall and pentail. Um, We've actually been seeing, I don't know if it's just where I'm at, but my pentail numbers consistently have gone up every year, but uh, they, I saw quite a few get ma- gadwall and pentail, and then we'd shoot, you know, if I shot a six bird limit, there'd probably be two mallards mixed in with that, one or two yeah. sprinkled in. Yeah.
1: I was up there right on the South Dakota border right at that same time, and we were killing all gadwalls. And then that's when out western Nebraska, they were killing tons of mallards, which just blows my mind because they are south of where i was and maybe i mean some of these things are it's like you're one person in one spot mm-hmm. and so to take that and like globalize it because i know that same time we were shooting gadwalls we talked to some other guys up there and they were shooting all green wing teal they're like we didn't even see any gadwalls and for three days we killed i know the last two days we killed three man limits of gadwalls like two days in a row we talked to guys a mile and a half from us from where we were, and they didn't even really see any so some of this is so subjective yeah, because you're one person in one tiny spot. Um, but but it's interesting. So you were at that time then you were still kind of mixed bag.
2: Yeah, of gray, it,
1: of gray ducks with some mallards mixed in.
2: Yeah, it was pretty mixed bag. And then about that time we transferred and I started hunting a couple fields for mallards. And then that's actually where all my mall Most of my mallards were shot this year were over cornfield uh-huh. corner bean fields. So which is kind of typical. Um I don't know if Kansas does this, but Iowa actually does a bird survey, migration survey, and they do it every week on the WMAs, which is yeah. kind of, it's a misleading survey, in my opinion, because it doesn't actually take into account any of the birds on rivers. It just mm-hmm. looks at the refuge birds on WMAs. And they say that, like, let me actually, I got to pull up here. They typically speaking, they say that like the first and second week in November are the biggest flight flight years, like the flight weeks. Mm. In Iowa, mm-hmm. and like when our WMAs hold the most birds. And like this year, we did the best flight week was the last week in October. So that was that cold front. Yeah, that was a big cold front. And then, which like really kind of goes alongside with what we saw was like that was our big flight. And then after that, it just kind of like we just maintained birds the rest of the year. Like through the rest it, of the year. From that
1: point on, there was almost no cold clear into late December.
2: Yeah. I mean. And by that time, we were done hunting. Yeah. So you guys missed.
1: So when do you guys close down, Into December?
2: December? Uh, like December, second week in December, typically.
1: Oh, man. And then are you just pretty much done duck hunting at that point?
2: Yeah. So I extended my season this year by going, we went down to Kentucky, and then that mm-hmm. was my extension for the duck season, and then went out to Indiana to extend the goose season this year. Yeah. But Man, being, yeah,
1: being, that's way too early to be done.
2: Oh, it, it's, it's every year this happens where our duck season ends. I go out, sit in a field for goose hunting, and then we just have clouds of mallards coming into the goose spread. And it's just course. every year right. I'm just like, I just wish. <laughs> and then the other thing that happens every year, like I said, I'm big into diver hunting. We'll hunt the goose blinds on the river. And every time you'll be sitting in a blind and mm-hmm. there'll be just rafts of birds just taunting yeah. you out in the middle. <laughs> Well, when they don't get
1: shot at, they suddenly act different. Surprise, surprise.
2: Yeah, yeah. They're not getting drove through with boats all the time and everything else. But so going back to the migration stuff, though, we got that early push in October or that early push in like late October. And then we just never got another push of birds. And my where I was at the numbers on like the survey kind of reflect it where we just maintained birds. And I honestly, I think it got pretty rough for the guys that hunted uh, dabblers, but By that time, it was like the first week in November this year is when I switched over to hunting divers. So I switched earlier because we got an early push of bluebills. So the bluebills got pushed in with that cold front. And where I'm at, they stage up on the river. So when they come here, they stay here until they eat the food, and then they leave. So it could get, until unless the river ice is over, they're here until the food runs out. So they came early. We were able to. And what are they
1: eating? What what are they feeding on?
2: Um, in our pool here, it's a lot of wild celery and wild rice. And the occasional, they'll get on like the, the rock flats and get some snails and stuff like that. The scop will. But canvasbacks are all wild celery here. And then it's kind of the same thing with the redheads and uh, some of the other birds too. Ringnecks. I
1: love divers. I, I really like, if, if I could go redhead drakes, canvas back, bluebill those three species i really like those three species we don't have opportunities for them here i'm sure if i were to target them on certain lakes i guess but i mean we just don't i don't know of the opportunity we have them. and i wouldn't not mallard hunt for them, but i would definitely hunt them because i think i don't view divers as like trash like some people do i think they're spectacular birds
2: yeah the only birds that like i mean my least favorite divers to hunt are golden eyes and buffalo right. head. i just think yeah. that they're I mean, I'm going to say that they're, like, a lesser bird than, like, my nice yeah. cans. Like, I love my canvas backs. I think canvas backs are the best eating bird there is. I, mm. I value them above a wood duck on the eat, eat scale, mm. and which that's a pretty high praise for me. And I just – but the bufflehead – the thing about hunting bufflehead, though, is they just – If you've never done it in a layout boat, they come in with such reckless abandonment. It's honestly incredible Mm -hmm. that there's any left in the, in the world. Like, it's honestly incredible (laughs) how, like we shot one this year. Uh, One of my buddies actually brought a two man layout boat this year and my buddy shot one and it literally bounced off the front of the layout boat. It was so close. (laughs) Like they just come in so awesome. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, they're butter balls, but Hey Mm -hmm. man, they, they still eat and they're just so much fun to hunt.
1: Yeah. So when did you make the decision to focus more on divers and and not puddle ducks? When did you make that decision and what brought you to that?
2: Like you're talking years ago or this year?
1: Well, just whenever. I mean, at some point you made the choice that hey, I could chase puddle ducks or I could put my attention more to divers and you decided divers. I'm, I'm curious as to why you've made that decision.
2: So it actually comes all down to one hunt and I'll, I'll retract his name here, but he took me on a hunt. And it was to a spot that I'd never been on the river, didn't know it even existed, right? Lived here my whole life. And we just like hooked up and, hey, let's go out on this hunt. And I was like, okay, perfect. Let's go. And we're sitting in this blind. It's freezing cold one morning. I mean, it's like that like snow pelting you in the face type of freezing morning. And all of a sudden I looked up and it looked like just – the most birds I've ever seen in my life. It was just a cloud. I actually thought it was blackbirds at first. There was just so many birds. And then the way that cans, especially work into a spread is so unlike any other bird, you can't call it them, which is the most frustrating thing in the world to not be able to call it a bird. Like I don't realize how much I call it birds for myself, not for the birds. Right. But, um,
1: feels like you have some influence when you you know, yeah, as much as you think.
2: Yeah. And like with those that they, they couldn't care less about what you're doing with your call. But they like, what they tend to do is when they get in a big group and they're working over a raft, they circle in a figure eight. And so they'll actually circle oh. in a figure eight in front of the raft. And then they'll come off the corners, typically of the eight, and then fly into the raft and then feed with the raft of birds. That's what they're typically doing. And, you know, Mallard typically circles around and. Or behind you and everything well it can you can sit there and you can watch them the whole time they're not flying behind you you can watch them work your spread in front of you and then circle off and land and so it's just like i went on this hunt and it was such like a a life-changing experience we ended up shooting a three-man limit of shot our cans pulled the can decoys and we ended up shooting some scop and some redheads and we just shot an awesome limit and i like talked to him afterwards really cool guy really really cool guy and i was like hey like Are you going to be mad if I like hunt this area? Like you definitely introduced me to this, right? Like this was not something I'd ever done before. And he's like, no, go for it. Like, seriously, go for it. And so we kind of have like a unspoken agreement that if I hunt certain parts of the pool, we're in contact to make sure. Mm -hmm. Because he likes to take people from out of state, just like me. And so we're kind of in contact, like if he's got people coming from out of state. Typically, you know, you get to hunt the better areas. If I got people from coming from out of state, we get a, we'll, we'll trade kind of hunts and we know where to go and we keep tabs on each other, but um, it's, I got introduced to it and like, it was just life-changing. And so I decided that I like literally in the blind that day, I'm like, yep, selling Mallard decoys is going to go buy some canvas backs. Like this is, (laughs) this is it. This is what I need to do. And so, and then every year it's typically like that second week in November, I'll start scouting them. And there's a couple places where I can, I know where I can go sit with a spotting scope and look out and see how many birds are on the pool and where they're sitting and everything. So like yeah. I said, it's usually about the second week of November is when I make that switch. When I start to see them show up, the other thing with uh, bluebills, bills, Scott, um, they fly in on a full moon every year. So if hmm. the full moon lands on, you know, the second week of November, that's when they'll be there. If it lands on the first week of November or the last week of October, that's when they show up. So that's typically the first like sign that I start hunting birds.
1: That's cool. Have you? Do you ever watch the Falling Tide TV YouTube channel?
2: I've seen some of his videos. I shouldn't. I don't say I would follow him, but I definitely like am aware of it.
1: Have you seen his canvas back hunt any of his, any of his canvas back hunts?
2: If I did, it's been a while ago.
1: Yeah, they're really great. They because they you know you can only shoot two, so they'll get like six people and just take turns with layout boats, mm-hmm. and that's the first. Um canvas back videos like that. Like I have no idea how flocks of canvas back works. I've killed three in my life, and it's like a single. Yeah. I've never I've never witnessed a flock of canvas back in my life. So I have no idea how they how they react. And and down there, when they didn't do too well this year, their have their kind of habits changed. But in, in the couple of videos he has, it's like massive groups of canvas backs. <laughs> and they've got four guys just watching and filming, and then two guys in the layout boats and they're switching out. You would love the videos. And that when I saw that, I was like, oh man, yeah, I gotta get on one of those. That looks cause canvas back, I mean, they're just royalty. Yeah. They're they're royalty.
2: Yeah. I mean like But I've got no experience with it. <laughs> you're mis- you're missing out. I mean, like yeah. one of the things about layout boats, um, it's so different than dabbler hunting. Like, that's one of the things that I think that I really appreciate about waterfowl hunting is, you know, I get a start and I get to shoot these little blue rockets that were zipped through decoys. And then, and then we go and we hunt the wood ducks, which are like, they're just zipping around and landing into the decoys, even though they're not a decoying bird. And then, and then we switch over and I shoot mallards for a couple of weeks, usually go out into dry fields and we'll shoot some mallards. And then I hunt cans and I hunt the divers pretty much through the rest of the season. And it's just like this huge variety. And it's like, obviously my divers are my favorite, but like we just have this huge variety where I'm at and it's, I'm very thankful for it. But yet the thing about laying in a layout boat though, is like, it's so much fun to not be laying in the layout boat. Like it's one of those things that's hard to explain. Cause when you think about like a dabbler hunt, like you only get so many flocks that you're going to have the opportunity on, right? So like, if you're on a typical hunt, you only see, have five flocks that set up. Well, if you're not, the shooter on one of those five flocks, well, then you're just SOL, right? Well, diver hunting, they typically fly most of the day. And so you can set out a spread and take turns in there and you're pretty much Mm -hmm. everybody's going to have their opportunity. Obviously the guys that go out at first light are going to have more birds right away. You know, you just kind of, you put the inexperienced guys in there at first light, let them get some shooting in. But like it's so much fun to be in the run boat and you get to like watch people shoot and you get to watch them and like, It's honestly so much fun. It's like I said, by far and away my favorite type of hunting to do. And like the other thing with like canvasbacks, especially, is like they're trophy bird for a lot of people, right? And so I shoot, I shot twenty three or twenty four canvasbacks this year between hens and drakes. And so like uh, most people, you know, like yourself, they shoot three in a lifetime. And so when they get a get on one and they get to shoot their two bird canvasback limit plus two scop, like it's just an amazing day. Everybody's happy, and it's I don't know it's i'm hooked on it so hard it's insane
1: that's cool yeah that's neat um so su- summarizing the migration you felt like it was fairly normal for you guys this year.
2: yeah so i'd say like timing wise and everything yeah the the big overarching thing is is that it happened early we had a small migration early and then we just maintained birds usually we have like a bigger migration a bigger push And then the birds like leave pretty quickly afterwards, where this year it seemed like the birds showed up and they just kind of like stayed around. There was no reason for them to move.
1: So it certainly wasn't like a, wow, this has been a weird migration. Really odd year, wasn't that?
2: No, not really. I mean, like I said, everything was pushed forward a couple weeks compared to normal. And then it just Mm -hmm. and then just nothing after that. We just kept hunting the same birds.
1: All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on here. I know that you have become a big part of the Duck Gun Podcast. You want to hype anything that you guys have going on or talk about that at all?
2: Uh, I mean, other than go follow Duck Gun Podcast, I'm the new co-host over there. Displaced uh, some other guy you guys might have heard of. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, stole,
1: cut, Stabbed me in the back. <laughs> took, stole my job. <laughs> uh, so... No, you're doing a great job. I'm glad to see that. And uh, you're doing a fantastic job. And I'm sure that I'm sure you're loving it because I know you love to talk. So I'm sure you're just like on cloud nine being a part of that and you're doing a fantastic job. So
2: yeah. Uh, Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Just follow us along on the the duck Gun chronicles. Duck Gun podcast. And then we got a couple of big projects in the works for this year and, uh, hopefully, hopefully people enjoy them.
1: Yeah. Well, the ones I know about people are going to enjoy So yeah, guys make sure and go. And if you're not already check out the duck Gun podcast and, um, some of the hunts, that Hunter's talking about are over on Duck Gun Chronicles really early in the season with some of those teal hunts um, on the Mississippi River. If you haven't seen those, you definitely need to do yourself a favor and check those out as well. Well, that's all I've got for today, unless there's anything else you've got on your mind that you want to talk about, Hunter.
2: No, we're looking good.
1: All right, man. Well, I'm sure we'll share the blind at some point in time. But um, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Until next time, this has been another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast.